actively be rude. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Good morning. How are we this morning? Are we well? Yeah, a few of us are well. Good job. You've been enjoying the sunshine this week. Hands up. Good morning. It's so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, we are going to be carrying on today in our series in Mark. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, to try and pull out all the amazing stuff uh, that Jesus does in it. We're calling it the King and His Cross because we're following the life of Jesus, walking in His footsteps, seeing what He did, uh, just watching how He does things. Uh, and it's so, it's been so encouraging. I don't know about you guys, but I've been so encouraged so far hearing from all the different people around our church um, about what Jesus has been doing. And even in the life of our church this week, there's been incredible stuff happening. We've heard of people uh, getting meals delivered as they've had a new baby. We've heard people getting healed. Uh, we've heard of people uh, helping out with housework and gardening, helping other people. Uh, we've seen uh, people receive anonymous gifts from other people in church of just a blessing financially. So there's been loads of stuff happening in the life of our church, and it's really, really exciting. So my encouragement to you today is if you're uh, here for the first time and you're thinking, I wonder if these guys are a good crew I could join. I can wholeheartedly recommend the people in this room as the most excellent church you could ever be a part of. They're good folk. And so last week, Sarah spoke to us in Mark uh, chapter 8, verse 22. Uh, we looked at how Jesus healed a blind man, how he put his hands on a man and saw him uh, restore his sight. And actually, we saw that the disciples were beginning to recognize that Jesus wasn't just some really great guy, that actually he's the Messiah. He was the savior that they've been waiting for. They've started to notice this. In fact, Peter, who's right at the center of our passage today, he's the one that says, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one we've been waiting for. And so today we're going to dive into Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And we see Peter, after his glorious recognition of the Messiah last week, uh, fall mightily this week uh, as he tries to tell Jesus off uh, for doing what he's about to do. So we're going to read Mark chapter 8, verse 31 to chapter 9 verse 1. Uh, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles on the ends of the rows here. If you pop up your hand, one will magically make its way along to you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would love to give you one as a gift today. You can take that away totally free of charge. It's yours for life. So Mark chapter 8, we'll start at verse 31. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Sorry, I'm just going to pray before we open the word. God, we thank you so much for your word in the Bible. We thank you that it can mold and shape our lives in the most incredible way. We thank you that your word is alive today through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we just come uh, now before you, Lord, desperate to hear the truth in your word today and desperate to apply it to our lives in a way that sees uh, our lives change and the lives around us change. Amen. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, uh, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I always think, go on, Peter. I mean, he's bold, isn't he, Peter? <laughs> he's definitely bold. Takes Jesus aside for a quiet word. <laughs> and then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? 
Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the angels. And then he said to them, Truly, I tell you, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. And for me, I think today's passage is all about cost. It's all about the cost. Firstly, what cost? Does Jesus pay so that we can be free and uh, experience grace and be able to run into a relationship with the Father? Secondly, when we follow Jesus, what is the cost to us? What does it cost us when we say to Jesus, I'm going to give you my life? And thirdly, what is the cost of pursuing things that aren't Jesus? When we focus on the things that aren't Jesus and we run after the things of the world, what does that cost us too? So this passage is all about the cost. And the first thing is the ransom that Jesus paid, Jesus' ransom. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus tells the disciples about his death. So it's obviously something that's really important to him that they understand where he's going and why he's going to do it. He needs them uh, to hear in their heads before he gets to the point of the cross why it is he's heading in that direction. He warns them three times over. I just want to read the three times really quickly just so that we can feel the weight it is of what he's saying. So in Mark chapter 8 verse 31 that we just read, he said, he then began to teach them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed after three days and rise again. Then Mark chapter 9 verse 31, it says this, He said to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they didn't understand what they meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Then again, in Mark chapter 10, verse 33 and 34, it says, we're going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. They will hand him over the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill them. And three days later, he will rise again. It becomes apparent really quickly as we're going through the book of Mark that Jesus needs the disciples to know where he is going and why he is going there. And there's four things that come up in each of those passages that he explains. Number one is this, that he is going to die. He needs the disciples to know, I am going to die. You need to be ready for this moment. I am going to give my life. Secondly, it's an intentional death. He means for this to happen. He's not stumbling into an accident. He's not uh, walking into some murderous plot unaware. He is intentionally walking towards the cross instead of running away from it. Number three, it's not a suicide mission. It's murder. Uh, And he explains who it is the murderers will be. He says time and time again, I'll be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. The son of man will be handed over. And number four, The most important part, he will rise from the dead. On each of the occasions, he tells the disciples, I'm going to die, but three days later, I will rise back from the dead. I will be back. This is not the end. It's no accident that Jesus is plotting a course towards his demise. He isn't stumbling towards it. He isn't feeling around blindly, hoping for something. He knows exactly where he is going and why he is going there. This truth, This unbelievable truth that Jesus would gladly and willingly hand over his life so that we could experience grace is the center of of the whole Christian faith. It is the linchpin that holds the whole thing together. It is the bedrock that we build everything else on, that we had a savior who was willing to lay down his life as a ransom paid for ours. It's God's plan. God in three persons. 
God the Father isn't uh, pushing Jesus out the door like some reluctant teenager towards the cross. He's not like, you better get on that cross or I'll be taking something away from you. He's like, Jesus is going willingly towards it, willingly laying down his life. And I think that's why Jesus has such a strong reaction when Peter says to him, "Uh, this is bad news. Don't get on the cross. You can't give your life. You see, Peter's still imagining uh, Jesus to be the all-conquering savior in this moment. He's still imagining him to overthrow the Roman Empire and set things straight. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because in the moment Peter tries to tempt him off the cross, Jesus is saying, you don't understand. This isn't about throwing over some empire for a short period of time. I'm going to defeat death forever in this moment. The last thing that the enemy wants is for a ransom to be paid that would set free every captive of sin from that point forwards into eternity. It is the last thing he wants. And it's the exact thing that Jesus is going to do. Um, There was an Air Florida flight a few years ago, Air Florida Flight 90, that crashed into a frozen lake in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, And all but six passengers uh, survived. Uh, All but six passengers uh, were killed in the plane crash. And so there were six people left in the frozen lake as the plane was sinking. Uh, And a helicopter came out to get them uh, about 20 minutes later. And there was a man called Arland Williams. Um, He was, they rescued one person and then they put the ring back down for him. And he took it and he handed it to someone else. And they got taken up and they put it down again for him and he handed it to someone else until the other four people had been rescued and they dropped it back down for him. And just as they got to him, he passed away. He lost his life just as they got back to him. He'd used his last ounce of strength uh, to see that somebody else lived. And the sacrifice that he made on that day made sure that a couple of people uh, survived and were able to go on living their lives. The sacrifice that Jesus made on the day where he hung on the cross meant that every single person from that point forwards had a chance to encounter God the Father, could experience unending grace and could receive eternal life. It is the most crazy gift that has ever been purchased. And what Jesus did in that moment wasn't give us a get out of jail free card. It wasn't like he was saying, you've got eternal grace, so go and do whatever you want and just come back and hand in your get out of jail free card every now and again and that's fine. That's not what it's about. It's a gift so generous that it makes us want to turn away from the things of the world, the things, the mistakes that we've made, the, the, the stuff that we're falling into time and time again. It makes us want to turn away from that and fix our eyes on Jesus because he's so, so good. He gave his life so that we could be free. That was the cost that he paid. He paid the ransom note. In that moment, we had freedom forever. C.S. Lewis, uh, the author of uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, puts it like this. He died not for men, but for each man. If each man had been the only man made, he would have done no less. Imagine what would change in our part of the city here that we love and that we're committed to if every single person within a couple of miles radius of this school experienced the revelation that they are loved by Jesus so much that he gave his life for them. So much that even if they were the only person in the whole world, he would have still gone to the cross for them. Imagine the potential for parents to know love in such a way that they're able to excellently demonstrate it to their children, knowing that they are first loved and so they can love well. Imagine uh, the power of addiction 
being broken in the face of sacrificial love that it just cannot stand in the face of what Jesus did. Imagine debt and poverty being wiped out because people understand that they were so loved that radical generosity springs up in a way that nobody goes without, that nobody's left behind, that nobody's lonely, that nobody's isolated. That's the power of the truth of Jesus' sacrificial love and action. That is who he is and what he's done. He's paid for each and every one of us and every life in Aberdeen in the Shire. That was the cost that Jesus paid. And so what part do we play in the telling of this greatest love story that's ever happened? What is the, the cost for us? What is, what is it that we're being called to do? Um, I think it's all about an opposite opportunity. Jesus doesn't tell us to kick back and relax and enjoy ourselves now and just wait to float off to heaven on a happy cloud at the end of our lives. He doesn't say just chill out uh, and everything's fine. He leaves us a mandate with a forfeit. He leaves us a mandate where we have to put some stuff down and pick up his things and run towards him. It says in verse 34, he called to the crowd uh, along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it to gain the whole world yet forfeit your soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I don't know about you guys, but the first reading of those few verses, uh, that feels like a really tall order. Jesus literally says the words, if you want to follow me, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. He speaks about our need to deny our own uh, wants, our own longings, our own desires, and align ourselves with his longings, needs, and desires. He speaks about not pursuing a life of riches and fame if it's going to lead us away from Jesus, what good is it to have that if we don't have our souls in line with the Savior? He calls us to a lifestyle in these verses that is the complete opposite uh, often to what the world would tell us we should be doing. Um, I was out with Evelyn, um, a little girl, the other day, uh, and we were having a great time at the park. And one of the things that she loves to do when we're out is to pick up stones as if they're like really precious jewels. So she'll pick up stones at the start of the journey uh, and just carry them with her for hours on the trek or wherever we're going around the park. And on this particular day, she'd found two sizable stones and she had one in each hand and she's wandering around the park. And I was like, would you like ice cream, my love? She, I don't know why I asked that question. I don't think the, question that, the answer to that question has ever been anything other than yes. But she was like, yes, I would like ice cream. And so we went to the ice cream stand and we stood there for what felt like an hour deliberating on flavors um, because there's so much choice. There's literally, you know, 20 flavors and narrowing it down to one is really hard. And eventually we got it down to strawberry. Uh, so we got some strawberry ice cream, put it on a cone. We walked away from the stand and I said, here you go, we love, here's your ice cream. And she looked at me with a mixture of excitement and just like absolute disappointment because she realized in that moment that the two stones in her hand, one of them was going to have to go. And so I watched her for a minute deliberate on how she was going to do it. And she tried to put both stones in one hand, but they were just too big and she kept dropping one. And she was trying to work it out. She did not want to let go of these stones. It was like they were the most important thing in the world to her. Eventually she said to me, Daddy, can you hold my stones uh, and I, while I have my ice cream? And I was like, yeah, of course I can, my love. And the moment I gave her her ice cream, uh, she totally forgot that the stones existed. Uh, it was like her favorite thing ever. And I sort of Andy Dufresne them out of, uh, out of my pocket. There's a wee Shawshank Redemption reference for you there. Basically, if you laugh there, you're probably over 30, uh, was what we've discovered. 
Uh, and so I sort of dumped them off uh, in a little bit of rockery at the side, and she never remembered that they ever existed because she was so transfixed with the ice cream. It was just like the best thing ever. We got back in the car, she was covered. All her face was covered in ice cream. It was all over her clothes, but completely satisfied. I think that wee story sums up quite well what Jesus is saying to the disciples here and what he's echoed uh, through time towards us today as we read this word. He's saying, guys, put down the rocks so I can give you ice cream. Put down your rocks so I can give you ice cream. Often we think we know what's best for, for ourselves, don't we? We live in a world that's all about instant gratification, our own happiness, our own need for success, our own need to achieve. We see car adverts that's like, you've got a car, but you need a bigger car. We see perfume adverts that says, if you wear this perfume, this man with a six-pack will be all over you. We see, we see uh, music videos that encourage drunken one-night stands as the pinnacle of our relational ability. We see magazines telling us, buy a bigger home, fill it with more expensive stuff. Get better clothes, get a better job, wear a flashier watch. Rock after rock after rock, we pick them up, we pick them up, we pick them up until our hands are so full that we cannot carry what Jesus wants to give us. That is a tragedy. In that moment when our hands are so full of the world's rocks that we can't carry Jesus' ice cream, we are exactly where the enemy wants us. Because we're satisfied with security or comfort or, or belongings, and it takes away the sharpness of the gospel, we should be dangerous for this world. If we are following Jesus in the way that he's asking us to here, sacrificially laying down our cross, ready to run towards him with everything we have, we are so dangerous to the things of this world. But when, we, when our joy is founded on what we have and how much we have of it, we lose that sharpness of growing close to the Savior. The opposite of that, those rocks in our hands, is when Jesus hands us the ice cream. And what the ice cream is, is endless grace lavished upon us by a king who loves us dearly. It's the security of our eternal destiny guaranteed. It's a personal relationship with the Father. It's the Holy Spirit alive and at work within us, prompting us, prodding us, encouraging us, challenging us at every step. Can you imagine what kind of dent would be made on the brokenness of our city if a, a, a church raised up with those kind of people? What would it look like if all of us just put down our rocks, grabbed hold of the ice cream and ran towards Jesus with everything we have? I think we would see people stopping and genuinely caring for people uh, instead of filming uh, when people are fighting or something embarrassing's happened on their phones. I think we see hospitality spring up, meaning that people who are currently living lives of isolation and loneliness are suddenly welcomed into the very heart of a community where they belong and they have a purpose. I think we'd see families on the brink of destruction being handed the tools to stop barely surviving and start thriving. Guys, this city is crying out for a church of people who are willing to pick up their cross and follow Jesus. Desperate. It is desperate for a church that's going to bring something different 
to the rocks that are mounting up in our hands. Half-baked following of Jesus is not really a viable option. It's not an option Jesus leaves us. He doesn't say, guys, come on in, uh, pick up your cross for a little while and then put it down and have a rest. He asks for our full-on commitment, fully in with him, giving him everything that we have. And I guess the question he's asking today is, will you join? Will you join me? Will you pick up your cross and follow me? Will you put down the rocks of the world, grab hold of the ice cream and run with me into an adventure where we see this place transformed? So that's our part to play in it. The final thing that I want to look at in this uh, moment is the interaction between Peter and Jesus. And I think there's a little warning in here uh, for us to cover our blind spots. Um, I just want to look at that interaction again. Uh, He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Um, Go on, Peter. He's like so bold, doesn't he? Like if he's nothing else, he's bold. And then Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. To put this interaction in perspective, literally uh, in Matthew's gospel, in the few moments before this has happened, uh, Jesus says to him, says to the disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then Jesus says, uh, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh of blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He's literally just said, you are the rock on whom I'm going to build my own, my whole church. And then a few moments later, get behind me, Satan. And I'm like, how did he go from here to here so quickly? And I think the answer was his perspective was wrong. He had a wrong perspective. He was waiting on the Roman destroying conqueror showing up. And so for Peter, when Jesus is saying, I'm going to go to the cross, he's like, what? That's not part of the plan. That's a defeat. You lose. If you die, you've lost. Jesus is saying, Peter, you don't get it. The cross is about bringing an even greater victory than the one that you're imagining. He needed someone to speak into his perspective. Uh, When I was in school, physics was one of my favorite classes. I loved finding out how things worked and the mechanics behind the earth and why things behaved the way that they did. Um, And we we were in our higher class. We had a new teacher come and join us. Um, I won't tell you his name. I'll keep it uh, in the off chance that he's listening to this podcast (laughs) at some point in the future. Um, But he was basically, he was this really tall guy and he was super built. He looked like a UFC fighter. So we called him Mr. Kevlar. Uh, So I'll just refer to him as Mr. Kevlar for the rest of this. Um, But unfortunately for him, his physics ability didn't quite match up to his physical prowess. So on his first couple of lessons with us, at one point he was trying to explain to us uh, what happens when you drop a sandbag out of a helicopter and how at some point the wind force going against it matches up with the, pre- like the force of the object falling so it balances out at a speed that doesn't just keep accelerating all the way down to the earth. At some point it hits a speed and it can't go any faster. But when he was explaining this, what happened was in his equation, he worked out if he dropped the helicopter that the sandbag would have went up the way out of a helicopter before it started going down. And we were like, that wouldn't, that wouldn't happen. But he totally totally stuck by his guns as if this was like the complete truth he was like yeah it would that's what happened you drop a sandbag at a helicopter it goes up and then goes down he just could not admit that he was wrong everyone in the class was like you're wrong and he was like I'm totally right I'm the teacher you guys are wrong and he just couldn't he couldn't let it go how many of us can empathize with that feeling of absolute certainty that we are right and we're making a great decision even when the world around us is saying this is a bad decision 
do not do this. This is not good perspective. How many of us have needed a Jesus in our lives to say, what are you thinking? In this moment, Jesus is saying to Peter, mate, I know you think you know how this should play out. I know you think you're an expert here, but you've got it wrong. You need a fresh perspective because yours is limited. You want me to conquer this little kingdom for a little while. It's a short-sighted perspective. You need to understand that what I'm about to do is going to echo through eternity. You're wrong. Peter's perspective needed transformed. About two years after I gave my life to Jesus, I started uh, getting really close with one of my best friends, uh, who was a girl. And in my head, I saw the scenario playing out that uh, she wasn't a Christian. So I was like, I'm going to start dating her. It's going to be the best thing ever. I'll help her to become a Christian. She'll, she'll see how amazing Jesus is in my life. She'll become a Christian. Uh, we'll all live happily ever after. It'll be amazing. And so I explained uh, my plan to my best friend, James. And I said, mate, got this plan. She was also his girlfriend's best friend. So I was like, you'll be totally on board. We'll be double dating. It'll be the best thing ever. So I told him the plan. And he was like, that is a terrible plan. He's like, it's a really bad idea, mate. He's like, this is not going to end well for you. Uh, And I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's going to be great. I've worked it all out in my head. I know how it's going to go. Fast forward two months later, we broke up. It was the most horrible thing ever. It was painful. It was a week before our 21st birthday. It was messy. It wrecked our relationship. We never quite got back to being friends again after that. And I just didn't listen. I think I actually did a really great job of pointing her further away from Jesus uh, than she would have been when we started going out. And I still feel gutted about that today. Guys, if we want to run this race well if we want to make decisions that draw us closer together, if we want to build solid friendships, relationships, marriages, we need people who are wise people around us speaking into our lives saying, what are you doing? But we also need to be willing to listen to them. It's not enough to have somebody saying that, but we also have to trust and take on board the wisdom of others. When our perception, when we're so deep and the lies that we tell ourselves are our own false sense of reality. We need trusted people around us who will take us by the hand and say, let me just draw you away from that decision because that is a bad decision. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, brothers and, sis- brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. And so I guess a great question for us to be asking this morning is, who am I allowing to speak into my life in a way that would change my perspective on a situation? Who am I allowing to speak into my big decision-making moments? Who am I allowing to bring grace and wisdom into some of my most difficult choices? Who are the wise sages I'm going to invite into my life to make sure my blind spots are covered? Why don't we stand and we'll pray together.